Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We are online as well at RadioNorthland.org where we stream our audio to the masses. You can also check out uh, past episodes of Rasslin' Memories Then and Now at the website RadioNorthland.org. You can pick us up too on the TuneIn app, our stations. All three of our stations are available there. It's Rasslin' Memories Then and Now. I'm Glenn Broggett along with my co-host down there deep in the heart of Texas and when uh, at the time of this interview today, Day. It's a, a very warm May day down there in, in Texas in the uh, mobile studio. I welcome my co-host, my partner in crime, Mr. Mike McCurdy, the grizzled vet. Hey, Mike. How's it going, Glenn? Lovely 80 degrees right now. About to hit probably 95 today. So, you know, summer's coming a little early in the state of Texas, unfortunately. Well, it's, it's a little bit different up here. Uh, it just got up into the low 40s right now as we are chatting. Uh, so uh, definitely a contrast in temps. Uh, yeah, just a little bit. I prefer to be inside, you know, finish watching COVID con time of this recording. You know, yesterday was the, uh, last day of the COVID con that Kenny Casanova and John Cosper was also part of. And, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of wrestling, you know, memories and all that, you know, into that weekend, man, it was great. If our listeners want to find it, you can find it on fight TV. They have a replay of it and it'll also be available still on Facebook and they are putting together a YouTube uh, video of it all. So, our listeners who are listening to this, obviously, after COVIDCon is over, you'll be able to go in and enjoy all the interviews that I got to enjoy this weekend. Yeah, it's it was a, a, a real just plump full of, of great content. And you know what? Uh, it's it kind of coincides, like, qu- quite coincidental, though, that one of our uh, guests today uh, was a, a, a big force behind getting this whole thing together and it being such a, a resounding success. Oh, definitely, man. I mean, it, it was great. I mean, a guy put together very quickly, but, you know, there was a lot, like I said, a lot of talent, uh, you know, great interviews, great questions. I mean, I enjoyed it. I think I watched most of it, which is saying a lot, because it was like 12 hours both days. I think I watched probably 80% of it. Well, it's great because it's uh, something for, for the fans to enjoy, especially during this new normal with all the wrestling shows shut down. I mean, man, there's people out there jonesing for something new and pro wrestling related. And it's so cool that there was a COVID con like that. And uh, yeah, you know, it's making the best of a bad situation. While you were watching, I was reading, Mike, uh, and I was reading uh, the book uh, from uh, both of our guests today. This was a fantastic read, a very absorbing read. I love the stories. I couldn't put it down. I had finished it in a day and uh, our guest uh, is going to be on uh, we're talking about Tracy Smothers and a book that him and John Cosper have put together about Tracy's life and uh, yeah it's called if you don't buy this book everybody dies and uh, this is just an amazing story uh, Tracy Smothers uh, a very uh, a, a very interesting it just like I said I couldn't put it down because it covers not only you know the territory days it covers the 90s uh, and even into the big boom of the late uh, 90s and into the 2000s he's been everywhere man i mean he's been all over different countries he's had so many battles he's even fought bears he's fought a bear three damn times this guy is amazing and of course he's been in the, one of the bigger battles uh recently uh, out of the ring he's been uh, battling cancer but he's been fighting cancer i mean cancer didn't know who it was messing with when it messed with this man tracy smothers uh mike uh, and i know you've had a chance to read the book too this is just going to be a fun fun uh, uh in addition to the program I have had a chance to go over the book, read some of the stories. I, I enjoyed it. I have always been a fan of Tracy Smothers from, obviously, you know, WCW, what the, the Wild Eyes, Southern Boys, the Young Pistols, you know, his time from Southern Italy. Who can forget his time 
in southern Italy. Oh, absolutely. Love Crazy Smothers. I was looking forward to this interview, and I'm really glad to be a part of it today. Oh, yeah. And let's, let's uh, without any further ado here, let's get the, these guys on. Uh, first, we're going to welcome the man uh, who has put, helped put out so many great books uh, through the years, and I've had him on the program many times, and he has just done such a great job. One of the guiding forces behind COVID Con, too. We're talking about John Cosper. I'm going to in- introduce John here first to the program. Hey, John, it's good to have you back on to and to talk about such a, a very, very cool book. Hey, guys, thank you so much, and, and uh, it's, it's great to be back here again. This COVID con thing, at the time of our, our recording, uh, you just wrapped up a big weekend. Uh, like I said, uh, Mike has consumed most of it. I'm going to start uh, watching some of the uh, the Encore stuff, and uh, it's, it, I mean, I, I saw all the hype when you guys just started growing this thing. I mean, man, this became a mammoth thing, because more people, and I kept looking and following your your posts, more people were signing up. Were you really, I mean, this had to be just uh, amazing for you, just a pleasant surprise for for you uh, to get this thing off the ground and have it be so successful and so proactive. It was it was really cool how it evolved. I, uh, I, I one Saturday morning I was on, on one of the writers groups that I'm on and somebody posted a link that there was a somebody was supposed to just just kind of a small author fair. They're going to have eight different offers doing a Facebook Live thing um, on on a on a Saturday. And so I messaged uh, messaged a couple of different people. Kenny was I think was the first one. Kenny Casanova was the first guy I messaged. And, he was like, this is a cool idea. And he, he took the ball and ran with it like far, far beyond anything that I had in mind. And uh, what started off as an idea to get him and Scott Teal and Greg Oliver and, you know, a, a few other writers together, like, um, you know, it just blo- blossomed into an online virtual wrestling fest. And I mean, it, you know, we, we actually ended up expanding. We had a f- four hours on Friday night as well, which was mostly dominated and, and delightfully so by Rock Riddle. Uh, if you guys have ever met or talked to him, he's, he's one of the greatest personalities out there. I messaged, I don't know how many indie heel wrestlers that I know. I'm like, you guys need to tune in. You need to watch this guy. You know, you will learn so much just, just seeing him. And, you know, here we all are. You know, a, lot, a lot of folks this weekend had, you know, had COVID beards. You know, Bill After had a beard when he popped in Friday night. And, uh, Mark James had a great beard. Mr. Hughes had one yesterday. And there's Rock, clean shaven, got his hair slicked back. He's wearing a $1,000 suit. He's got his fancy, you know, backdrops and everything and all that. I mean, just just to the nines um, was an entertaining night. But I mean, the whole weekend was was full of moments like that. You know, where we'd get um, yesterday afternoon, we had the Blue Meanie and Sabu, and we had Joel Gertner on the whole, you know, for for an ECW block. And uh, Kenny was arranging all kinds of run-ins with with like uh, Gangrel dropping down on Glacier. He had Tito Santana pop in at one point as an unannounced guest and. It uh, was just a great time, and, and hopefully it's going to lead to a few more uh, events like this. And, um, and it was different. You know, we wanted to be different than a podcast. You know, we're in, you know, having the video was one thing, but you know, we had a couple of moderators who came on, Rob the Slob and Deadly Eddie. We call Deadly Eddie. I'm sorry, we called them. And uh, I mean, those guys did a great job of, of uh, you know, not only offering up questions to our guests, but I mean, feeding them questions from our fans who were leaving comments on Facebook. So. Uh, it was a really great, really unique experience, and uh, as we all joked on Friday night, we we expect any time WWE is going to steal it and say it was theirs. So, but you know, whatever, it's it's, it's great stuff for the fans. Uh, let's get our guest, our second guest on the program, the man whose life story uh, you helped capture in the book. If you don't buy this book, everybody dies. He has been. Uh, I mean, I've followed his career since the early days when he was uh, working down in uh, in Memphis. I've uh, enjoyed him with the uh, Wild Eyed Southern Boys. I loved him in the Full Blood of the Italians and I you know even I even remember the Freddie 
Marty Joe Floyd days. This guy's just been a solid wrestler. He's worked up and down the card. He's been everywhere, man. And he's even been here in Minnesota. Well, let's welcome in Mr. Tracy Smothers. Tracy, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk about your, your wonderful book about your life in pro wrestling. Yeah, thanks for having me, Glenn. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, it's so good to have you. And like I said, I, 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 we talked about, you know, you've been everywhere in your pro wrestling career, and you even, and I remember uh, seeing uh, some postings of this, and I, I, and I've talked with uh, the promoter. You even made it up here, did some indie shots in Minnesota, uh, working for Ed Hellier in the Steel Domain. Uh, what can you remember about uh, being up in in Minnesota, especially working the gimmick that you work with the Confederate flag and the whole works? I mean, this, I mean, you're so good at being a heat magnet but what was that experience like being up in minnesota and being up here way up in the nosebleed territory of uh, of the north yeah uh, I, at the time i was living near rockford illinois and had a job there and what a regular job and uh and and, and uh I was staying with some friends there and uh, uh and, and and got in touch with ed or i can't remember how it worked and did but uh it was a lot of fun I worked with Mitch Paradise and, and another uh, a kid, uh, a kid named uh, Matt Burns. I think that was his wrestling name, something like that. A few good guys, and also in that uh, in that whole group was uh, uh, Ken Anderson, Ken Kennedy, Mister yeah. Kennedy. You know, he he was there. Uh, also, um, Austin Aries, Austin Aries. He was in that. Yeah, well, they had a lot of good talent. It's a, it a good time, and it was real easy there in Minnesota with the Rebel gimmick, you know, to get heat, you know, so, uh, you know, on the mic and in the ring, you know, it's a lot of fun. That was like 2002 or three, something like that. You know, I, I, I worked for Ed several times. Did you ever, you know, during your career when when you were off and running, especially with Steve, did, did you ever you ever have any sort of opportunity to 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 you know, you know even the potential chance to work up in the AWA, or was that just something that you know never really came to mind because you were you were busy working down in the South and down in those territories? Did you, did you ever have any sort of inkling? Well, back then, when I was young, uh, AWA was like one of the biggest ones. You know what I mean? It was hard to get in there. And uh, they had their, their regular crew that was a lot of them lived up in the area and, and a lot of top guys that, of course, you know, Vince rated them. And most of them had big runs in the WWF, it was then, you know. And uh, so it was hard to get in there, but uh, uh, it just never, opportunity never came for me to go there. I, I never talked with anybody about it. Uh, I'd see some of the guys, like, could they bring Kurt Henning in, you know, and Nick Bockwinkle would come in a lot. And also Ken Patera, he would come in uh, a lot. So I'd see some of those guys around, and I knew some of them. And then, uh, you know, and then when I was in Atlanta after that, it's, but kind of they were on the downside. And by then they had it, they weren't going as, like, all the places that they were going. They were only doing TVs maybe. And most of it was the guys that took local guys, you know, up there in the area. But at one time, Vern Gagne, I mean, you, you could say WWF, NWA, Charlotte uh, with uh, Jim Crockett, and then AWA was number three. You know what I mean? I mean, it was a big area, big territory. Yeah, most indefinitely. And of course, and it's a who's who of guys that went on and made it there. You know what I mean? Uh, out, of, out of there. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, and, that had ruins with Vince. And the guys that Vern had trained even, too, in those classes in the, uh, the, yeah. the early in the yeah. mid-70s. I mean, God, you look at those guys that were up in that barn in Chanhassen with no Eddie feet. Sharkey trained a lot of those guys, too. Yeah, yeah, you talk yeah. about Eddie Sharkey. Yeah, There's another guy. I mean, good Lord. I mean, the Road Warriors, Rick Rude and the and the like. I mean, I mean, there was, a, I mean, pro wrestling in Minnesota, just such a rich tradition. Not unlike, you know, down down in Memphis, uh, down, in, you know, with Memphis wrestling in the territory with, you know, you know the, day, the days of Nick Goulas and, of course, Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler. I mean, just so rich. And it was just so, yeah. I mean, the talent exchange between the AWA and Memphis, that was another great aspect, too, because yeah. it, you were able to, I mean, even as a fan, I bet, you were able to see guys like, like, like Patera and, and, of course, Nick Bockwinkel, the stuff uh-huh. that Bock did down there. I mean, yeah. Nick Bockwinkel was just a guy yeah. you could just sit and watch, and he went well into Kurt it. Henning. Oh, Kurt Henning, too. I mean, right from the go, I mean, those yeah. guys, I mean, the late 80s, uh, when Kurt started to take off before he left the w- for the WWF, I mean, with Lawler and that feud, and, I mean, Bockwinkel before that, I mean, yeah. and you talk about Patera, I mean, so many great, great wrestling memories, and, I mean, you, you basically, that was the area where you kind of cut your teeth uh, earlier on, it was, was in Memphis in your pro wrestling career that you've, you talk about yeah. in your book, uh, you actually got trained by some guys that ended up going to to the AWA, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, how you got into the pro wrestling business, and uh, you know because your story is so fascinating because it doesn't just start at wrestling; it starts. Uh, you were very, uh, I guess, you were a very talented athlete in high school. But let's talk about how pro wrestling and and how you got it together and got involved with the business, uh, going from your your athletic career in, in high school and college. I played four sports in high school: I played football, wrestled, uh, played on a golf team, and I played baseball. I didn't play baseball my senior year, but uh, it's a small school and everybody played about everything, you know, and uh, got a scholarship for football and wrestling to Carson Newman College. I just played football as a hard, as a hard school, a private school, real hard academically. So I, I couldn't keep my grades up good enough, to, uh, you know, to do wrestling. And, uh, it was just hard. But, uh, uh, and I'd watched the business growing up, you know, and, and local here, Jerry Jarrett, Nick Lewis, you know, ran here. Uh, uh, in Tennessee, where I was originally from, but uh, you know, and 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 I never saw cable wrestling because we didn't have cable in Springfield until, and I never saw a wrestling magazine until I got to college, and I didn't know who Dusty Rhodes was at the time. I knew Bob Backlund, Superstar Graham, you know what I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the Road Warriors were getting big when I first got going, so I started getting really interested in it, and I wasn't happy with school. I played two years of college ball there, and then I would see. Steve Kern, Stan Lane, uh, they were the fabulous ones. They were really hot down in the old USWA Memphis territory. Uh, they were a big deal. And uh, I'd see them in the gym. I'd see Bill Dundee. I'd see Bobby Fulton. I'd see Carl Fergie, Dutch Mantel sometimes, and guys. And, that, you know, everybody knew who they were, and it was a big deal. And uh, uh, my dad knew Jerry Jarrett. And uh, they almost went into business together. My dad was in the car business, and Jerry Jarrett was going to buy a car lot and my dad was going to uh, run it for him. And uh, my dad mentioned to him that I was interested in, in doing it. And uh, he referred me to Stephen Stan. Steve Kern and Stan Wayne had a wrestling school and they trained me. And then they ended up left and went up to AWA and did a big run with the Road Warriors. You know, when the Road Warriors had not left, uh, you know, Atlanta very long, NWA, you know, and, uh, and the Road Warriors, of course, from the area you know, uh, in Minnesota, Minneapolis. 
and uh, they, they left for a while. So I, I got in with Tojo Yamamoto. I was working with George Lewis, Nick Lewis, and uh, and Tojo trained with Tojo a while, and uh, uh, you know, and did that. And then uh, Fabulous Ones came back. Tojo got it back in with the Jarrett's. So I started there uh, for about three years. I kept my old job. I had loading trucks and I worked part time for them on weekends and was on call during the week and stuff. And, uh, you know, and I always carried my stuff with me to work. Uh, my boss would let me if I had an hour notice to, to go and, uh, you know, things like that. But uh, then I went to Louisiana. I worked for Bill Watts for about a year in the Mid South uh, in 86. And then 87, worked Florida for about a year for uh, Mike Graham, you know, and, uh, um, you know, Hero Matsuda and Duke Comica. Kevin Sullivan is the one who's put us together as the Southern boys, Steve Armstrong and I, in 87. Mm-hmm. And then we went to Continental for 88, and then left for a little bit, came back in 89. In 90, we went to uh, WCW for two and a half years, you know, and then uh, Smoky Mountain for Jimmy Cornette. Uh, three years, three and a half years, something like that. I go back for Japan some, you know, and then uh, with WWF under Freddie Joe Ford for a year, uh, you know, and then uh, ECW for like two and a half years, something like that. And then I was a trainer uh, in 2000 for WWF out of Memphis for about a year. And, uh, you know, and, and then, then I worked for a group called Main Event. And then after that, just mostly just independence. No, you, you you know you talk. I about, did the one night stand in '05. I did the uh, the hardcore homecoming in '05. Did the hardcore justice in 2010 for uh, TNA. You know, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, I was going to talk about back to to Memphis when you were training with the Fabs, and the Fabs all of a sudden leave. Now you were just starting in, in your career, and you kind of found yourself into some political waters uh, via the Fabs, as far as you know, getting in with with, with Lawler in, in, in Memphis. I mean, that was I mean already kind of getting an education in the business. But can you talk about you know trying to get through that minefield early on, and uh, a little bit about what it was like to work with with the Goulises? Steve and Stan had a falling out with Lawler, and, and I think uh, something they had to miss Louisville or something, or Steve did because his wife just gave birth, and they were in a hot angle and it was sold out. And back then, you didn't really, you know, you kayfabe a lot, and you didn't let people know your personal lives. And the Fabs really drew a lot of people and drew girls, and it kind of, you know, people weren't smart to that. They didn't believe that wrestlers had a life. You know what I mean? They thought it was just a rock star thing. And uh, so I had, it was, it was kind of, I was guilty by association. So that's why I got in with Tojo and George Lewis, Nick Lewis, some, and then uh, Gypsy Joe. And uh, uh, so I worked there a while. And then Tojo got in with, uh, back in with the Jarrett's. And uh, uh, so Tojo got me in there, but I couldn't get in. You know, it was hard to get in the business period to get booked. And they just say, well, you ain't got much experience. We can't get any experience if we don't get in the ring. And then the Fabs end up coming back, you know, and so that helped me, you know. And uh, Tom Renesto, remember him? Tom Renesto, yeah. uh, he was one of the original assassins with Jody Hamilton. He liked me, and he came in and booked, and he, he brought in Randy Savage and Lanny Popo and Angelo Popo, and they liked me. They were good to me and, uh, and helped me a lot, you know. 
Yeah, you got to work TV with Randy uh, yeah. early on in your career. I mean, that was, must have been a heck of an experience because with Randy, I mean, that that gimmick, man, I mean, he was he was fast and boy, he could move and, and it must have been something just to, to, to be in the ring with Randy at that point and just right before he hit uh, big fame with the WWF. Yeah, he was getting ready to go uh, and do the, he was getting going to Loser Weave Town with Waller all around the loop and it sold out everywhere. Memphis, Louisville, Evansville, Jonesboro, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, everywhere. And uh, I worked with him on TV and I went 11 minutes and on TV with Randy and he made me look good and it's hard to do. And uh, I was in the boy, I was nervous. And, I, and the funny story is it's in my book. Uh, I can remember him throwing me outside. He let me shine a little bit. And he, he threw me outside, and then he come down on the floor on me, and he says, "You ever took a suplex on the floor?" And I said, "No, sir." He said, "You are now." <laughs> so he suplexed me on the floor, and nobody did that in 1984. You know what I mean? I started in '83, as I said, and and uh, afterwards I, I come back, and I was just ecstatic, you know, and I was, you know, as best match I'd ever had, and. I remember I had, I went to him because he had the sheet. He was helping Waller. They were getting ready to do, you know, a lot of stuff to lead up to his original week town for him to go to Vince. And, uh, and, and I said, to, I was like, man, thank you very much. I said, that's the best match I've ever had. I, you know, thank you so much. And he just like looked at me, grabbed my arm. He goes, Jed, he said, never think a man that suplexes you on the floor. <laughs> and just, <laughs> you got a point. But uh, yeah, he was something else. And you also I got, got to work with Lanny on TV too, and around, and I worked with Angelo a lot. Angelo was in great shape. Uh, he uh, set the world record for setups or something. Boy, his endurance was just unreal. Mm-hmm. You yeah, also but, uh, did did some pleasure. stuff with with George Championship uh, when they were doing some talent exchange as well. Uh, you got to work down in Atlanta. We uh, you know, with the likes of uh, a guy like a Ron Garvin. I mean, these are uh, some some big time you know guys that were very popular in the territory era. Yeah. And, and boy, what was it like right. to work with Ronnie and, and and be down there in Georgia for that that period of time? Ron Garvin, Chris Benoit, those two guys chopped me harder than I ever been chopped my life. Gypsy Joe, but but those two guys. Chopped me harder than I ever been chopped my life. Boy, he was a beast. Uh, all of them were. Uh, Ron Garvin, I, I worked Ron Garvin the night in Louisville, Kentucky. I want to say 84, 85, I think 84, when they were doing the uh, working together at Georgia Championship Wrestling with USWA or CWF, whatever it's called. And uh, I was about to go to the ring when. Uh, Jimmy Hart come running upstairs and told Christine Jarrett, Jerry Jarrett's mom, said Randy and Rip are fighting downstairs. Like, oh my God. So you went, went downstairs and uh, Lanny uh, had, uh, uh, I can't remember if Rip's wife then, she's, she's died. She died. I can't think of her name. Brenda something. Brenda Britton, I think. Lanny had her uh, held down and they had broke up Randy and, uh, uh and rip and they had some old bees from years ago or something i don't know you know and uh well i remember that that was crazy this is wrestling memories then and now i'm going to bring mike mccurdy into the conversation to ask uh, some questions for both john cosper and of course tracy smothers the author of if you don't buy this book everybody dies hey mike you got a few questions for the boys uh, i think i think i might have one or two questions for tracy yeah um I'd like to talk a little bit, uh, Tracy, about your time in Smoky Mountain as well as ECW because in those two groups, you got a chance to work one in Smoky Mountain with Jim Cornette 
and an ECW poly dangerous elite, Paul Heyman, who I think are two of probably the best minds in the business, you know, just in and out. So first off, I'd like to talk about, you know, your time in Smoky Mountain wrestling. Cause I was in the tape trading. I got the tapes from Smoky Mountain. I thought it was a great organization. And like I said, run by Jim Cornette, amazing mind for the business, but I'd like to get it from your perspective, your time in Smoky Mountain and just what that environment was like. I was at WCW and Steve and I had worked with Bobby and Stan a few times, Midnight Express, you know, and, uh, and, and, uh, and we worked with them before years ago when we worked at Florida territory and they were working together some with Crockett and we got to work with them a couple of times in and went real good. Uh, and, and, and Jimmy always liked us and all, and he was going to bring both of us in. Steve had been released something about his, uh, he had some music then and they wanted WCW wanted him to sign it over to him and he wouldn't do it. He didn't want to do it, you know, and he ended up and had a falling out with him and was gone. Uh, you know, uh, and, and had, I had already signed something to stay with him. So, uh, uh, it looked like Steve and I were going to go in at the same time as a team and work with the heavenly bodies, but ended up, Steve got a spot with WWF then and, uh, um, ended up, he didn't stay about three months. But, uh, uh, and so I, it was only me. Well, Ricky Morton become available because he got released from WCW. Bill Watts, like, like everybody come off their contract was gone, you know, as soon as his, uh, and he was making guys take a pay cut too. And Robert was in there working for Jimmy at Smoky Mountain. So they put Rock and Roll Express back together and they, they popped the territory, uh, by them reuniting and, uh, you know, and everything. And then, so I didn't have the I didn't go in as a tag spot. They wanted Brad Armstrong, but I think he resigned with WCW, and uh, uh, and and so he wasn't available. And so they needed a single babyface. So that's how I got that spot. And Jimmy stayed in contact with me uh, for about a year, but he didn't tell me that well he's going to do what I just told you. Then you know uh, till I got there and uh, um, and uh, hired me and. and you know, that's that's how I got in there and did, you know, work three and a half years and I'd go to Japan four or five times a year between that and they'd do something to hurt me or did some way figure me out. And uh, But it helped me stay kind of fresh in there and I was there from late 92 to 95 till the shutdown. Just why Jimmy has such a mind for the business and he planned real far ahead. But like where uh, Paul, Paul would do a lot of things on the spur of the moment, just off the fly. He would. He could write a card down on a, uh, you know, on a napkin or something. You know what I mean? You know. And uh, but both both were similar in a lot of ways. And as you said, they're, they're two of the best minds in the business. Two of the smartest guys that knew how to book and had different perspective on things. They're, they're very very intelligent. Now Smoky Mountain had a good run, like I said, the '90s. And they were still kind of in the territory time when there really wasn't territories, but there still was a few there. But Smoky Mountain was big because, you know, the tape trading and all that. And I think it was a great organization. I don't think it, gave, it got enough of a run as it should. You know, what was kind of going on during that, that, the, that three years? Do you think it could have gone on longer than what it did? Or were there some internal things? Because it just kind of seemed to wrap with, up. With Smoky and I, Mountain? I think it could have gone on longer. Yeah, Smoky Mountain. Yeah, well, yeah. Jimmy had, really had too, he, he had too much for one person to do. And he was close to getting some TV deals uh, with some major uh, markets, and we could go in bigger towns because some of the uh, 
there it was like a winter territory it did better in the winter and uh in early spring and it didn't as good and, and, and it did all right fall but it had seasonal and, and some of the areas were real rural areas and it wasn't a big population so it was hard to draw if they had something going on you know it was really tough and uh you know and, and then jimmy got to working with wwf and uh, they had a working agreement with them some and brought some of their guys down brought undertaker in and uh few more guys, I can't remember, but a bunch of guys out of Smoky Mountain end up that made it and, uh, to other areas, you know, gangsters, and, and a lot of them, ACW, WWF, WCW, and a lot of them, you could go on and on, uh, but uh, the, the time and then, the business wasn't doing real good as a whole, there wasn't many places left to go, you know, and, uh, uh, and you know, they're 92 to 95, it was just hard. You know, and it was hard, and a lot of us had been there a while, and you kind of need a turnover. But uh, uh, it was a, uh, really hard to to uh, to draw. Cable was getting big. You know, WCW and WWF was about the only thing going. Smoky Mountain, Ring of Honor, I don't even know it even started yet. There wasn't many places left to go, and it just got to where he couldn't get in any big markets. And I don't know what happened, but that something happened. He couldn't get in some of those he's trying, and I think that's kind of a downfall. You know, there. All right now, let's talk a little bit about uh, your ECW run. Um, like you said, another thing, Paulie Dangerously or Paul Heyman, obviously a lot like Jim Cornette, great mind, and could, like you said, put things together just on the fly. And we've all heard those stories, but I'd like to hear a little bit about kind of how he came up with it, or who came up with the concept of it, and how. You came to be from Southern Italy as one of the full-blooded Italians because I thought that was like one of the greatest gimmicks because yeah. there was like one Italian, <laughs> I believe. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Tommy Dreamer, Tommy Dreamer put it all together. He had put the first time I worked with him, uh, uh, I was working for Vince, and and they had a working agreement with ECW, and I was in New Haven, Connecticut. The last shot I had. Chris Candido, Shane Douglas got me in, and uh, and 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 they had a day show in New Haven, and then uh, I traveled up with Tammy from there, Sonny, who was with Chris Candido then, and uh, she was going to pick up Chris, and uh, and everything, you know, from there, and uh, and and he had got me booked there. Chris did the work with Terry Funk, and Terry was getting ready to work with uh, Raven on the first pay per view they had. And uh, Raven put him over. Terry was going to be, you know, the champion and everything. So I was, I'd worked with Terry before. I was like, all right, great. So got there. And well, Lance Storms uh, couldn't come in, something with his flight out of Canada. And then uh, they asked me if I would mind working with uh, Van Dam. And I said, no, sure. I'd worked with Rob when he was 19, um, you know, and he's worked barefooted. And I said, sure. So whatever y'all need. And then they said, uh, yeah, yeah, they said, well, we're going to, they ended up putting Sabu Rob or the Eliminators. Remember them? Perry Saturn and John Cronus. They worked them. John Cronus, uh, yes. That, and they didn't mind working Taz. And uh, I said, no. I, said, I knew Taz because Taz and Chris had come in and smoked them out a couple of times, you know, when they were getting going. And, uh, you know, and, and, and things like that. And I'd worked a program with Chris, of course, down in Smoky Mountain for about six months. And uh, it was a pleasure. But uh, so Taz, we worked, I worked Taz. Taz. Paul liked it. Taz liked the match and everything. And said, you want to come in? And, and, and he wanted to put me on the pay-per-view. And I said, well, I said, I got a 10 I'm going to Kuwait. 
uh, coming up. I've got a raw, and then I'm going to Kuwait. They do four raws in, and then uh, I'm going. I got ten, ten, uh, going to Kuwait for a week on a tour, and I've got a ten day run on house shows with WWF. I said, "Can I do that?" And he goes, "No, you do that." He said, "You do that, and when you're done with that, then do you've got a job when you come back." So I was pretty well at the end of my contract there with them. And uh, with WWF, and, and it looked like I was coming back. So uh, that I did that, and then come back, and then in my second show with Paul, I didn't know who I was working with. It's ten to eight, and uh, they did everything so right at the last minute. I knew I'd be on early, whatever I was doing, you know. And uh, uh, so I asked Sabu, I says, "Who am I working with?" He goes, "Hold on, we'll find out." So he went and asked Paul. Paul goes, "Oh, I don't know yet." He goes, "You want to work with him?" But Sabu goes, "No, no, he was working with uh, Spike Dudley." who was a protege of Taz and he was going to beat Spike down some way, you know, and Taz come out and whatever, you know what I mean? Just up for the pay-per-view. And he said, I'm doing that. Remember? He says, Oh yeah. Yeah. So dreamer come over to me and Tommy says, you got your red flag. I said, yeah. He says, I want to put you in a tag. You and Chris Chetty, who was Taz's cousin, uh, working Guido, Tommy rich. And he said, you and Tommy are not getting in the ring to the finish. And then you're going to do a thing and, and screw Chris and Guido get the pin, and then you turn on Chris, and then we're going to put you in the FBI with Guido and Tommy. And this was like five to eight. We were on first. So that's how I got into full-blood Italians. But uh, it was all Tommy Dreamer, the dance-off, all the angles and everything we did, and the, the uh, videos or interviews we used to do. It was all Tommy Dreamer. <laughs> it was all Tommy. Uh, everything and he, he had a great mind. He handled a lot of the mid card and underneath stuff, and Paul more of the top stuff, you know. And Tommy was real detailed, and I, I, I always thought he he should have let Tommy handle a lot of the travel or a lot of things. But Paul do a lot of stuff at the last minute, and uh, you know, you know what I mean, and, and, and things, and especially like getting people's flight. Because if you don't get them at least a week in advance, it's real expensive. Uh, Tommy was real good working together with Paul. He had a great mind, a great guy, you know. That's how the FBI, that's how I got formed right there. I mean, it's within 10, 5, 10, 5 minutes. And then we go to the ring. That was it. <laughs> no. But it was fun. What What did you think of your run with the, uh, the FBI? Because, I mean, it was a great group. You had little Guido. You said Tommy Rachel was the dawn of the group. And then you and yeah. they build you, like I said, from southern Italy, obviously a play on the south. But, you know, how was the gimmick? Because it seemed to have gotten over, and it was really fun because, obviously, as I said, you know, full-blooded Italians, but there was one. Uh, it was a great gimmick. What did you think of it? Oh, it was a lot of fun because there's a lot of Italians up there, and that was heat with them because Tommy and I sure wasn't Italian. And uh, uh, Tommy came up with that. Tommy was from Atlanta, Italy, and I was from Nashville, Italy. And, of course, Guido was real Italian, you know, and a great wrestler, great, great worker. And it was a lot of fun. I was there two and a half years. It was a blast. And I've done stuff with them over the years since then with Guido and Tommy, Some mostly with just Guido, but uh, sometimes with me and Tommy. You know, and everything, but it was a lot of fun. People still remember it. You know, it's been a while. That's 97 to 99, I guess, we did that. So one other group I wanted to kind of touch base on a little bit. You had a brief run with it. And that was uh, JCW Juggalo Championship Wrestling. You actually worked for uh, the Insane Clown Posse in some of their groups. I want to talk a little bit about that because that is definitely kind of a, an offshoot. It's not your normal wrestling. So... I was kind of curious what your what you thought of your running your time there. Oh, um, uh, I knew Joe and Shaggy uh, from Sabu 
years years ago. And then in ECW, I was in ECW. They came in and did some shots there, and uh, uh, and did. And I was on a uh, connecting flight with them uh, from Nashville to uh, I believe it was uh, Fort Lauderdale. And we were doing a pay-per-view, and they come from Michigan, and they stopped through Nashville, and they were so fired up, loved the business. They loved it. They couldn't wait to go out there and take big bumps and do hardcore stuff with Sabu and Rob, and that's what Sabu and Rob were killing guys in, you know. And I was like, I, I said, guys, I said, I remember this. I was like, I don't even, I, I don't listen to that kind of music. I said, but I know who y'all are. I said, my son loves y'all. I said, why in the world are y'all worried about doing so into wrestling? They go, oh, we love it. This is our job. We love music, but we love the business. We run our life. It's just, they just so fired up, could not wait, and just love the business. And then uh, they started running, and they brought me in and uh, and with the Rebel gimmick, of course. And, and uh, that's real heat with them because of Juggalos, you know. And, and uh, that's just a gimmick to me. I don't never portray it in a racial way or anything. And uh, never, never. And uh, the Juggalos really hated that boy. And it was just natural heat, you know, and uh, dangerous because they throw stuff at you and they come after you, man. You fight one of them, you have to fight them all. But uh, it was a lot of fun. They always paid me good, took care of me good. And uh, I just worked for them last year uh, before I got sick. Well, I was already sick, but I just didn't know it. And on their uh, gathering they had, it was only about an hour and a half from my house here. Uh, so I've I, I worked for them off and on since 2007. Their fans are crazy. They're under now, underneath yeah. underground cult. You know, they're not a gang. They're just a cult. You know, and they are live, eat, and breathe being a juggalo. Believe me. Go what ahead. can you tell us about the gathering? Because I know that's that's like an all night wrestling card. Like I've heard, there's matches that go on at like one o'clock in the morning. And it's just a whole different. Oh, thing. it would start to one or two in the morning. Yeah, it would start to one two in the morning. Uh, always real late, you know, after the, uh, the, uh, big stage where they have a lot of the top bands come in, name bands, they do it after that was over. So that could be anywhere from God, one o'clock to three o'clock before that was over. And I uh, do a lot of encores and things like that. And then they'd have them, they all come there and it'd be big crowds and, uh, just wild, you know, they're, they're crazy. And, uh, they, they love the business. So it's kind of like an ECW crowd, but different. You know, you know, but just really enthusiastic fans, and uh, they they love wrestling, and, and they're just they're, they're nuts. But it was a wild scene. They'd have thousands of people there. I couldn't tell you how many was there, and uh, uh, they bring in a lot of top name guys. You know, Joe and Shaggy would they they just love the business. Um, I wanted to bring you in for a few minutes, John. Talk kind of about because obviously we're here to promote the book as well, and we all know you know Trace's great career. How did you? get in touch with Tracy or how did Tracy get in touch with you? How did this book project start? Cause you know, like Glenn said, it's a great read. I mean, great read, great story. How did you guys first kind of come in contact and what was the process behind the book? Well, uh, we had a mutual friend, Tim Dennison, who actually connected us. He, he reached out to me and said, would, would you ever be interested in working with Tracy, uh, on a book? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, so he kind of connected the two of us up. We actually been in a lot of shows together, a lot of the early, in the indie shows I went to was this destination one that Tim was involved with. And Tracy was, was the champion and the, and the top heel for a long while in New Albany, but we never actually met face to face. And, um, he got us together, uh, one morning, uh, would have been uh, just close to almost two years ago now. Um, and we just kind of talked over, over breakfast and stuff. And I still had a project or two I was finishing up. 
But then uh, early last year, I started doing preliminary work on it. And, uh, and then in the fall, um, actually right out the time he got his diagnosis, we started just weekly just doing phone calls. And um, we, we just kind of went year by year every week and, and, and kind of talked about uh, you know, all those different stories of places he'd been. And, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of those weeks when we were talking, he, he was in the hospital. And, uh, I mean, he, he'd go in for a week at a time to do chemo. And, um, there were nights he could talk for two hours cause he was hyped up on whatever it was they'd given him to help him to deal with the chemo. And then there were nights where he, he couldn't talk me more than five or 10 minutes. And, and there was actually one night he, he hung up and collapsed, I think outside by the car and his, his girlfriend was able to get him to the hospital at the time. But, uh, um, it was rough going, but, uh, I mean, you know, it was something that, um, and I think it happened at the right time. Like, like I said, we've been talking about it for almost a year before we really buckled down and, and started working on, you know, doing the interviews. But uh, uh, it gave him something to keep going, you know. And, it, uh, you know, we, like I said, whether he was in the hospital, whether he was at home, you know, we had our, you know, two, three times a week, we'd have our phone calls and, and, and recording sessions and um, kind of worked our way through the book, you know, one, one year at a time. Now, here, this is a question from both of you, John. I'll start with you. Going through the book, like I said, there's a lot of stories in this book, and it's a great read. But how did you decide the direction you wanted to go and what stories that uh, you wanted to tell? Let's start with you first, and then I want to get uh, ask Tracy the same question. I really, with everybody I work with, I, I kind of let them take the lead in, in whatever stories they want to meet. Each each person really kind of has, has a way they, they want to tell their story and uh, what they want to tell, and, and, and you know sometimes things that they, they may not want to tell. and. Um, I mean, we, anything Tracy gave me, you know, it went into the book initially and, um, you know, we realized each other, there were some, there were some times when, you know, Tracy looked at it and go, I don't remember telling you that story, but let's take that one out. Uh, you know, there were a few of those, but, um, at the same time we kind of looked at it, you know, this is, you know, therapy, getting some of this stuff out. But I mean, with, with each one of these guys, it's, it's really up to them, what stories they want to tell, what kind of tone they want their book to have. And. Um, I've been very fortunate to work with guys who are, you know, have great memories and are great storytellers. And um, I, I mean, literally, I mean, we, we'd spend an hour, hour and a half some nights, you know, on an individual year going, you know, 83, 84, 85, um, you know, I, I can, can tell you, you know, look at a photo and be like, that was this place. It was this year. I mean, you know, even, even as many times he's been hit in the head, uh, he, he's got, he's got a great memory for those things. All right, Tracy, question to you. How, how did you decide what direction you wanted to go with the book and, uh, what was the kind of the process behind what deciding what stories you wanted to tell? Yeah, um, Tim Dennison is one, as John said, is one that recommended me to John, and he he knew John, and uh, I knew of of uh, John, you know, and uh, Tim Dennison is a good friend of mine, he's a lawyer. He helped me out on some things, and he had helped run some shows around Louisville there for a few years back, uh, 2013 to about 15, something like that, with uh, a couple guys, and uh, he uh, did that. And uh, he gave me good advice on it and, and to start it. He said, take notes and jot down like year to year your life and your career once you got in the business and, and take about a day and think on it as to what all happened during that. And that was real good, you know, advice. So Tim is the reason that we're doing this now, and, and I would have never done it, you know, with, without that. And, and I didn't know who to call. You know, I'd always thought about it, been told write a book. And he would manage me some, Tim would. Uh, some shows and we travel together and uh, uh, and good friends and uh, uh, he said he, he's the one brought it, he said you should write a book I'm gonna look into it I was like okay and then he came up with that with John but that year to year like just writing it down and jot down some notes you know and uh, uh, 
some stuff on each year is what really helped a lot. And, uh, uh, you know, it did. And as John said, I was hospitalized like 10 times from um, October to uh, recently, you know, uh, about five days each time. And in between, I'd have to go chemo every three weeks. And then I had a lot of uh, side effects off the chemo, you know, and everything. And I had to go back in sometimes, but it was tough because I would be out of it and be shot with, uh, you know, of course, chemo on me 24-7, and then all the steroids and pills they give you and everything, and shots and taking your blood, all that. And I was kind of out of it sometimes, and sometimes I could do it, sometimes I couldn't. So I don't know how much my memory could have been better uh, on some things. But uh, when you meditate and think about stuff happier, sometimes I forget, and I'd tell you a second later, or next time John and I talk, I'd be like, hey, uh, you know, might not have put that in there. I don't, you know, exactly what I said. You know, you really didn't want to knock nobody or anything like that bad. And you got to watch it. You know, it's pretty delicate. And I left and forgot a lot of people I should have uh, uh, mentioned in there. And I'm sorry about that, but I was just really out of it. A lot of times it'd be that I'd be home and they had a lot, I was under a lot of medication the whole time during this, you know, from October on. You know what I mean? And, uh, I think it could have done a better job of it, but hopefully it turns out all right. Getting good response, you, you realize you just think I'm just lucky to be alive because some of the stories in that book's crazy, and it's true. It's gospel true, and that with the bears. I mean, I, I wrestled three different bears in 83, 86, and then 89, and now the Humane Society's outlawed it. You know, it's, uh, it's not exist, doesn't exist anymore. But uh, I'm just, that's one I limp all the time. I mean, I'm just thankful to be alive after all I've been through. Man, and you can read most of it in the book, what I've been through. It's just crazy. I got to be around a lot and help a lot of people that went on and made it big in the business. And you knew they had it. And it's a who's who, uh, who I got to be uh, involved with, you know, promoters, wrestlers, referees, ring announcers, commentators, you know. Uh, could say that Gordon Soley got to uh, under him a lot in the Florida Territory, Continental Territory, and of course WCW. You know, I mean, and Lance Russell. You know, and and when you talk about you know guys like that, of course learned a lot from Jerry Lawler, and uh, you know, and uh, one of the greatest of all time. You know, and several more. You know, there's a lot of mentors. You know, had to help. We try to mention them all in a positive light. You know. I, I have to ask, because I, I think you're the first person that I've spoken to that's done this. One, why does one suggest wrestling a bear? And two, how do you wrestle a bear? Very carefully, believe me. You don't want to piss them off. <laughs> uh, first time I did it, I was wanting to get in the business. was in 83. I was in college, a junior college. I transferred to Carson Newman. And uh, I was wanting to go to University of Tennessee and walk on, play football. I talked to the coaches there. Wanted to play, I wanted to give it a try, and I didn't ever make it because I got into the business. <laughs> but uh, I heard about a wrestling bear. I was going to be down in uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Ginger, the wrestling bear I knew of her. She was like the, one of the original. I think uh, maybe Victor was another. But she was a 750-pound black bear. I signed a waiver. It says not uh, uh, liable for anything that happens. You know, and they and and you had to sign a waiver for that. You know, they they can't sue them or nothing, and and the whole deal. First guy did it was a big guy. He was gonna play pro football. It's in my book, the story. 
Uh, he and the bear boy, he messed him up. He tried to tackle him, and this guy said, "Don't do it." And he catapulted that bear, and bear about killed the guy. And they got in there to play football again. And I'm like, I was out of there, man. You know, I was like, I ain't doing this. And then we'd bring in a band, a bunch of guys in cotton school. And, uh, uh, you know, it was a good time. And y'all were good fun. And then like, no, no, you got to do it. So I, I did it and lasted three three-minute rounds. And uh, just, I thought the rest of the offense is a good defense. And then the second time, I was in 83, right long before I started training. The second time I worked for Bill Watts in 86 in Alexander, Louisiana, seven foot 1500 pound grizzly bear and i remember it, we worked uh alexander right there and a lot of guys lived in either alex or uh baton rouge and uh, uh some of the boys were there at the uh, at, uh hacksaw duggan terry taylor remember chavo guerrero and dj peterson god rest their souls uh they were there and i was with them and i remember uh, uh you know, they gave me a beer and gave me a shot, and I was like an expert. And they didn't handle social media then, and I was going, no, no, all those big bouncers and uh, some football players and some boys worked on the uh, offshore oil rigs were trying their hand at fighting the bear. And uh, I was like, man, I said, they, they, they stay away from them. Don't piss them off. This bear was seven foot, 1,500 pounds. Next thing I know, they're calling my name, Chavo and, and DJ uh, Ribney. And uh, they said, he's a big expert. Get in there. And I had on nice clothes. I was talking to a tall boy. And, and then I got in there and fought for my life. And uh, uh, the bear ripped my clothes off. I looked like I'd been in an actual street fight. And uh, at one point in there, I headbutted him in the stomach. Didn't mean to. And he was up against the turnbuckle. And uh, one cinched up on me, but broke me in half. You know, in a legit bear hug. You know, and uh, I was hitting him. It was like a baby hitting a man. And. Nick Adams, who owned the bear, who used to pro-wrestle some, uh, he uh, dived on the bear, and, and I was like, get this motherfucker off of me, you know. <laughs> and uh, Nick dived on him with a chain, and he got, went to play him with him, and then I was booking to get out of there. And uh, and I was almost at the other end of the turnbuckle, and the bear took uh, from the side, like, okay, and just launched and just pounced and nearly got me. I got out of the ring, and I crapped my pants and everything. I really did. And I took a hell of a bump on the floor, and guys were pouring beer on me and everything. Fortunately, I had my sweats and shirt with me, and so I could change and clean myself up and everything. And the girl had nothing to do with me after that. She was talking to one of the bouncers. And then the third time, which you see on YouTube, was a, a, a Siberian grizzly bear. It was 550 pounds, was only 10 months old, gained 100 pounds after a month after that. And... Uh, I had Wendell Cooley was supposed to have done it, who uh, was the top babyface. And I was in tag with Steve with the Southern Boys gimmick, working rock forward Jimmy Golden. And well, Wendell hurt his knee in a show, and uh, he couldn't do it. So they heard I had done it a couple times, and we worked something out. The night in Birmingham, I'm, uh, uh, I worked a tag match with Robert and Jimmy. Steve and I was on early, and then right before intermission, to go shoot with the bear. And then if I make three, three rounds with the bear, uh, work with Dutch in the main event for the single belt, you know, and all that. Dutch had done a thing where he said, uh, Wendell, whatever, Wendell said, do anything to uh, get a title shot. Dutch had signed this and did it, he did it without reading it. And so he had to wrestle the bear. But Wendell legit did not want to do it. And, uh, uh, you know, and stuff. And, uh, and they knew I had, as I said. But anyway, I've, I've done the first tag match and I'm getting, I'm actually praying and stretching. I get tapped on the shoulder. I turn around, and the lady's got a camera, 
And she says, hey, this is going to be on the 10 o'clock news. We want to interview you. And right, right beside her standing and then stepped up to me, got right up in my face. And she was just like grilling me on wrestling the bear. Don't you think it's inhumane? And this is the bear's got its claws cut. It's only got its back teeth. This is the inhumane and, and cruelty to animals and this. And I just looked at her and I said, look, lady. I said, I got to work twice. I wrestling terms that she don't know, you know. I said, I, this was in 89. I got to work twice. Let's shoot with this bear. And I got to do this not once, but three nights in a row. I said, I don't know why you're worried about the bear. You didn't worry about me. <laughs> and that didn't make the news, but what was on YouTube is the third of three rounds and the first of three nights of wrestling the bear. That was the smallest and the youngest one, you know, with that one. The other two were just beast, believe me. But uh, that's how I get around like I do, but I made it. I did it through three nights and I needed some days off and I couldn't go no further than the shower, my hot tub and my bed and lay on the floor and whatever else. Cause I, boy, I was, I was physically spent. Believe me. It was great. Right, Glenn, I'm going to pass the mic over to you for the uh, last couple questions. Yes. Well, actually uh, we're getting real close to the top of the hour. It's been a real fun uh, action packed hour oh. talking with Tracy and John and John, where can uh, the listener uh, pick up the book? Uh, is there a, 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 a your website, how eat, sleep, wrestle? Do you have uh, any autograph books? What's going on with where the listener can, can pick up a copy of this uh, book, Tracy Smothers. If you don't buy this book, everybody dies. Uh, yeah, the book is available on eatsleepwrestle.com. Um, I've actually d- built a web store, so now you can just kind of go in there and click an order. Uh, you can get Tracy's book signed, Madman Pondos, Dr. D. David Schultz, uh, Hurricane J.J. McGuire. I've also got a book that uh, Jimmy Wheeler of the Pro Wrestling Historical Society published through me, uh, The Italian Temper, about a guy from, from Des Moines, Iowa. It's a great read. But all of these books are available at eatsleepwrestle.com. If you order one of mine, I'll sign it as well. If you order Tracy's, I'll sign it. Um, there is $25 plus shipping on, on the website. Uh, and you can also order it through Amazon. Uh, it's not available on Kindle yet, but it is available in paperback just about everywhere around the world that, uh, that Amazon sells. Uh, so amazon.com or eatsleepwrestle.com if you want to get that signed copy. Oh, thank you so much for the information. And uh, this edition of Wrestling Memories is about to wrap up. I want to thank you, Tracy Smothers, for taking time out. And uh, we're, we're all uh, we're all supporting you in your battle. Uh, and keep on uh, kicking cancer's ass, my friend. You're a hell of a guy, and it's great to have thank your you. book here, man. And uh, you're definitely welcome to come back on Thanks and we get to share. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, my friend. For Tracy Smothers, John Cosper, and the Grizzle Vet Mike McCurdy, this has been Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I'm Glenn Broggett. So long.